0: The Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Sandy Metz, who is a programmer, author, teacher speaker, and was a Ruby Hero Award recipient in 2013. Sandy Metz, it's so great to have you join us on Maintainable.
1: Robbie, I'm happy to be here.
0: All right, so given your vast experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits of maintainable software?
1: I firmly believe that the cost of software is in the reading. You write it once, people read it for years. And so when people write software for their readers, like with good names, with organization that is gentle on someone who maybe hasn't looked at the software before, like that is, the, I think, the number one point.
0: Can you give me an example of gentle?
1: It's like we're writing the software for them, not for us. And so that inclination that we all have, that desire that we all have to be seen to be smart and clever is probably a thing we should kind of resist. Like, like, I, like I love writing clever code, but I've written code that I, the author, could not understand later. And that it means that no one can understand it if the writer can't understand it. So gent- that's what I mean by gentle, like with a faith in their good intentions and a belief that they mean well, trying to tell us, it's like a story in the bottle thrown to the future. And you want those future readers to understand it and appreciate your good intentions
0: I suppose maybe thinking a little bit more about this on, in terms of making sure it's readable and, and so that other developers can wrap their head around or get a mental model of the system or aspect of the system. I know there's a lot of people that join projects later on, and so they weren't there. And sometimes those people that started a project weren't are no longer there. And so, what do you think are some good habits for teams to think about when it comes to, say, documentation? Are you thinking more like the code itself should be pretty verbose,
1: mm, like good O O? is a bunch of small pieces that are somehow arranged in a collaboration. So every small piece ought to be understandable. Like if you arrive at a project and they have defined a role and there's two or three players of that role, it ought to be really easy for you to look to make another one like that. Like that's not the issue The You know, the bargain that we make with OO is if I make a lot of little things, it'll be easy to make another little thing. But, I'm willing to pay the price of perhaps not being able to understand the operation of the whole. And so I don't really want documentation at the object level, but I do want some integration tests or maybe even written down pictures that show me how everything fits together.
0: It's interesting. You know, what are some symptoms of like a, a code base based on your experience that tend to have a lot of problems? Like what, what types of things have you seen historically there that keep popping
1: up? Now that I spend my life like, going to shops and spending a few days and looking at code, it feels to me, well, again, could be selection bias, but I see us as humans doing one, you know, some really common things. One is that the problems that are easy, we write pretty understandable code about, but the problems that are hard tend to over time degrade into big messy procedures, The unfortunate truth about the problems that are hard is that they're often the things, the only things that matter to our domain, like user, in a Rails shop, user is out of control in every shop. That thing that we do where we go along doing the same thing over and over again, it seemed easy to begin with, like repeating that forever leads to incredibly complicated code. So one of the things I see where people are having trouble maintaining code is that they let it go too far all the while knowing that they were sorry they were doing it. Like, there doesn't seem to be a built-in system. I mean, I have some opinions about why this is, but it's like we as humans, we as individuals know that it's a bad idea to put more code in that class that's out of control. And yet there's some kind of social bargain that causes us to do it in the moment, even though we know it's a bad idea.
0: Definitely seen those examples of, like, say, a user model. Just You have this really large objects or classes especially in a Rails application you know I think there's not always a clarity for some people coming into this world of being like oh where should I be sticking these types of things if it's specific really related to the user like is it just like well I could there was already a couple methods here doing similar things so this seems like the right place to put it if they're not thinking a little bit more beyond that design
1: I mean, it really, it's, it's true that we as a programmer have a bargain with one another that we won't do things that are surprising. And so when an object gets really big, it would be surprising to not put more stuff in it. And especially juniors who don't, like in your example, a person who wasn't there at the beginning, who came in new to the project, there's no way that they feel empowered to write a little, you know, 50-line helper class to go along with a 5,000-line active record model. Like, they're just not going to do it. And so there's a way in which teams have to get together and, and draw a line in the sand and say, we've done that all of our history is like this, but now we're going to start doing a different thing. And that's a social contract, really not a technical one. Like, I advise people when they have those big classes that are out of control to get together as a whole team and say out loud, we're not going to do a commit that makes this class bigger. Like that alone really helps because then it gives people permission to write code a different way.
0: I think that's some, some good advice there. Do you have a current position on the metaphor technical debt?
1: We, okay, here's what we want. We want a way to communicate with our users or our product or whoever it is. Like we need some language that we share in common with them that allows us to have a conversation about the fact that some things we do improve our ability to do maintenance. And some things we do harm our ability to do maintenance. And if we do the harmful things enough, eventually we will be able to make no changes whatsoever. And so I don't know. I mean, some people understand that metaphor. Like we need words for that. I don't feel pedantic about that term, but I do feel strongly about that problem.
0: (laughs) Do you have an opinion of where the delineation between, say, technical debt and just, say, bad code, if there's something that's more subjective or that there's a blurred line there?
1: I, hmm, that's an interesting question. So let's agree on some principles. Let's assume that every programmer means well and that they would do the right thing if only they knew how, right? I mean, that's that's a pleasant place to live in. And so if that's true, what does it mean when people screw up Okay, in the category of bad code, what does it mean when those people write bad code? It means we've done a bad job of training them, right? What does it mean if they, after we train them, they insist on writing bad code? I don't know. Maybe they need a job in a place that thinks that's good code, right? So I I can be incredibly generous and really a stickler (laughs) at the same time, right? So bad code might be the result of our inadequacies of training. Writing code that harms the code base for expediency in the moment that's a different issue, right? That feels like what you're suggesting.
0: Well, I think there's like a often a conversation between teams where touching a debt might be used as a vehicle to convey some dissatisfaction with the code base or something that someone else wrote before, or maybe it was even something you wrote yourself. This is an obstacle. It's an area of the code we know is a mess, but we don't need to touch it that often. And so there's that kind of conversation that maybe a stakeholder can't really weigh in on prioritization of addressing that because, well, is that something we we really need to deal with right now because it's causing us pain in the near term future? Or is this like just some mess that you want to go clean up because you disagreed with how we previously did it?
1: I mean, I'm a big fan of addressing, okay, if we agree that we're going to use the term technical debt, and I'm going to define it as there's a place in the code where it's hard to make change because of decisions that we've made in the past. I could care less about that if it never changes again. Just walk away. Like the decision as a programmer, if we make a decision to go and rearrange code because it suits our sensibilities in the absence of a requirement that that code change, like this is why product is afraid of us. Like they think of us as a bunch of prima donnas that just want to write, you know, we want to paint our own little pictures that have not, you know, we want to do art in a way that doesn't add value to the business. Like, here's the thing about technical debt. Like, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. It's like non-programmers who need the software we write are like lambs to the slaughter. Like, they have no idea whether the things we're telling them need to be done really need to be done. And they have no way to judge whether or not, if we tell them, Like, I want to do this thing that's not related to a feature that you want right now, because it will make it easier for me to make features for you later. Like, how can they know if that's true or not? They just don't. And so part of our obligation is to develop a level of trust to make the product feel like they're in the boat together with us. And one way to develop trust is to have it become clear to them that you're not doing stuff just because it suits your sensibilities. That you really are aligned with their business interest. And so that's one thing, right? Some code is a mess. I'm sorry, it should probably stay a mess forever. There's another thing that happens is, you know, in code bases that, like businesses that have succeeded, inevitably have huge, big code bases, some portion of which is an enormous mess and an embarrassing mess, right? And those code bases often have been subject to waves of enthusiastic refactoring over a number of years. It's common for none of those waves to have ever reached completion. (laughs) So, so looking at the code is like going through this archaeological dig where some of the code looks like the best thing we can imagine. And then some of the code looks like the, the best thing we imagined in 2015, right? And so just my experience of looking at lots and lots of different shops is that apps are never, never beautiful. And that we need to concentrate our efforts on things that are touched when we take tickets off the backlog and that some things are a mess and they're going to be a mess forever. And I don't really care.
0: Do you think there's enough in the education process with, for software development? Like I didn't go to like a school to learn to become a programmer. So I I often hear people like, well, like they teach people to build new things quite often and in academia, or even in boot camps, there's a lot of building new features, or you know, or building a new application from the ground up. And I think there's probably a lot of merit to understanding from like square one. But do you feel like there's enough conversations about how to like manipulate and change existing code in education
1: sector? I mean, probably not. But I can understand why they don't do it. Right? Like, it's a grown-up thing to deal with a big, messy code base, and the amount of time it would take, like. How many hours are you actually in class if you're taking, like, the software maintenance course? Like, that number of hours might be necessary in order just to understand the domain, especially if it's messy. So it's it's super hard to teach those skills.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of, like, is there enough prep work for when they land that first job? Because I'm imagining most software developers don't get to start a brand-new application in their first job. It's usually, you know, you're in the deep end of something that's been around for a while. The business has been had enough success so they can hire you. Like that's an aspect to it, so there's going to be something there existing that's been around for a bit that it's gonna feel like a big endeavor just now you 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 might feel a little nervous about these next few steps there, and i'm gonna I'm gonna dive into that some of those topics in a little bit, but like what's your experience been when it comes to people coming into a new new into this industry and trying to have this aha moment I be mean, like, oh, refactoring and making changes is what I do, not creating new software
1: when I teach, I often try to drive that point home by telling people, okay, here's a continuum. On one end, like this is your job and you have to put yourself on in one extreme category or the other. On one end is I change existing code for a living. And on the other end is I always write new code. And it's interesting. Everybody has to put themselves, it is almost a hundred percent of the people put themselves in if forced to choose one of those two extreme categories. They have to put themselves in the, I change existing code for a living. And it's interesting that it seems to Cause this sort of brain blow up, cognitive dissonance moment? Because we all like to think that we write new code, but we really don't. We change code for a living. And so that, if it is true that what we do for a living is change code, then it goes back to that first thing we were talking about. It's really important that code be readable.
0: So that you can make good changes and feel pretty confident about that. And you're touching on an interesting point there. And like, I've, there's been uh, a couple of years ago, I saw an article by, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Legacy Code Rocks podcast. There's another podcast out there, but the folks behind that, they had an article and they were talking about makers versus menders in the software development community. And they're like, we're menders, not maker. And I think, you know, as an employer myself of software developers, we, I, I have this conversation a lot with people, especially people kind of new to the career being like, when do I get to work on new, new things? When are we going to build a new app? When are we? I'm like, well, first of all, that's not really my company's business model is as a software consultancy to build new stuff all the time. It's like we come in and help other companies with their problems. So it's just like that, well, would I feel like I'm missing out something? Maybe there's a place I can go where I get to focus on new things. I'm like, that might be maybe a startup or something, but even then you're not likely to always be like one of the first few people. So do you have any advice for those people that are kind of that are listening that might be going, like, Oh, having this aha moment of some sort being like I may it's okay to be a mender or someone that's going to make, change existing software for a living and it's not going to impede on their, say, creativity or the idea that they can be an artist as a, as a software developer?
1: I mean, here's the thing. Making is easy. Mending is a challenge. Like, to me, the sort of, like, you'll know you've arrived when you can look at a huge big mess and figure out how to mend it. And that is, first of all, wonderfully satisfying there's nothing better than the feeling of making order out of chaos. I'd use the term chaos, but apps are not necessarily chaotic. They just they were written to do a thing that is not the thing they need to do now. And so that the ability to look at an application and figure out how to bend it into a new shape so that you can do new things is a sophisticated challenge and it's the kind of thing that if you get a chance to practice enough and look at enough systems you can eventually learn to do, you'll know you're a great dev when you reach it. Again, anybody can make new things. Like changing existing things is is the best fun challenge of programming.
0: I often think back to the first time I was introduced to Martin Fowler's refactoring book, and I never thought I would get so excited to go back to my computer and start going back and looking around for things to improve, and whether it was something I wrote or something else. I think that was like a turning point for me, but it took a couple of years before I got to that point, I think, in my own career. You know, I want to touch on a couple of things related to Sandy Metz's rules for developers. And <laughs> so a couple of things in there. You often, and this is something that I think can be applied to, you know, any language, I, I would imagine. In the Ruby world, I know this is something that we talk about in our community, but you encourage developers to keep classes, say, under about 100 lines long, and maybe having methods with no more than five lines, Without going through all of your rules, but could you touch on what some of your rationale is for that?
1: Well, first of all, I, I feel the need to repeat a thing I said when I first made those rules, which was that I made them up at a shop where every class was 5,000 lines of code. So I was trying to push hard on the other end of the teeter-totter. There were five rules. The sixth rule was it's okay to break any of the earlier rules. And so what I, what I want is I think every shop, just like they should have a style guide, Because if you can tell who wrote the code, it's costing you money every time you look at it. I think every shop should have a bargain, a sensibility, an aesthetic, if you will, that's shared among programmers about what the right size of a class is. And often when you ask people, what is the right size of a class, they don't know. But but it's interesting, you can say, is 10,000 the right size? And everybody says no. And if you say, well, like if you just do the or- orders of magnitude, you know, is 1,000 the right size? People say no. Is 100 the right size? Then people start feeling like maybe that's too small. So so even though no one can answer the question, if you give them numbers, eventually what you'll find is most groups come up with a number that's somewhere between one and 500. And just having a sense of that is really important in a shop, because otherwise, it's that whole notion. This is a phrase I used to hate, but now I've totally embraced it. I've completely changed my mind. The idea that constraints are liberating. Like, I don't want to have to decide if my class is too big. If I have a heuristic about size, then I just use it. And so the rules are meant to help people at the boundaries not to have to make decisions about how big things should get. And you notice the other thing is that like you have to look at what our our tendency of direction of error. Like do people tend to make things that are too small or do they tend to make things that are too large? Right. Since we know that, then what we know is we need to put like constraints on the upper bound to make it so that, you know, you don't accidentally slip into terrain that's going to cause you trouble later.
0: It's interesting. Just to dive into this a little bit more with uh, specifically like the length of class, are you an advocate for having, you know, in the Ruby world where, you know, maybe, and especially in the Rails world, it might commonly just have a class be in its own file. Are you an advocate for keeping things separate into separate files? Or are you okay with having multiple classes in the same file?
1: I would absolutely put multiple classes in the same file. I think that's super important. And, you know, very often when I tell people to make small things who are Rails users who haven't, had a lot of other experience with Ruby and aren't used to writing their own require statements. Like people are like, oh, I I would have a million files. That's their objection. Like, no, you won't. Just put them, like, if you have a little set of, like, say, objects that play a common role and they're little, then putting them all in the same file is super useful because it helps folks who come later know that they can make another thing like that. Now you have to you might have to make your own little set of requires to get stuff to load because you don't want to get in a situation where like, if you're leaning on auto load, you might have to load. Like let's not let the tool chain keep us from doing what's right. Let's just do add small things to the tool chain to allow us to write code the way we want to.
0: I think that's interesting. Do you, Just to give some people some example, maybe a more tangible example, you know, without actually being able to see any code on a screen right now when they're listening in their headphones or what have you. But let's say you take that example of a, a really large user model or class in a Rails application. What are some examples of like things that you've often seen be like, let's extract this into, say, a different object or class?
1: The most straightforward rules, it's common to need to have logic that controls the collaboration of two subclasses of active record. When that happens, I think that's a different object, right? It's an authorizer, it's a whatever, it's something. So every place you look in an active record object and you see, like very often people make tables to hold data that represents either real world things or things that we're so used to that they feel real. And then the logic that controls the collaboration between those two things is often an idea. And if you have a system where users are buying tickets, you might have a refund. You might look in either the user or the ticket class to see the refund logic. I think the refund, the idea, like this is the best thing about OO. We're creating virtual worlds where ideas can be as real as things. And then if we do that, it can take a lot of the idea-managing logic out of the things and put it in different objects, which has enormous benefits because then, you know, if you have a refund object that where you inject the other objects that hold the data, you could, at runtime, that refund object is probably a subclass of object. It's not related to the Rails hierarchy. So you can easily imagine from there taking the next step in creating refunds that you can test without spinning up rails, right? If they're using the data out of user and the data out of ticket, you could easily plug in a fake user and a fake ticket and just test the refund logic because it's not about persistence. It's about the idea of refunds or, you know, rebates or whatever.
0: So like in the example of, you know, like a refund, are you imagining that there's logic in that type of object for like handling the calculation of what the refund would be as an example so if you feed it like a user and you know, it's like a ticket that I got purchased or something and then that itself is responsible for the calculations is that something you're then passing in a user model to and a ticket object I suppose
1: yeah exactly so let me let me tell you what I think the responsibilities of subclasses of active record are and that might help okay. So inheritance, in OO is a kind of relationship. So the subclass is a kind of the superclass. And I contend to you that user is not a kind of persistible. I think user is a kind of user, right? And so if that's true, and I think all the things that inherit from active record are a kind of persistible, which means to me that their responsibilities are, they revolve around like, keep, like, here's what I want. I love it. I just love this about Rails. I love that I can make a bag of attributes and they will get saved in the database so that those attributes have the values I want when I come back later. I love it that there's a place where I can define the relationships between different tables in the database, has many, belongs to, all that. But that's not my business. I am happy to tell ticket to save. Let's make a distinction here. Let's say there's a ticket object and there's an AR colon colon ticket object. There's a thing that represents a table in the database and that's a different thing than the business ticket that I have. So if you if you imagine we almost have to f- invert it from the way you see a lot of rails apps, right? Like if you have a simple straightforward rails app that really does follow the active record pattern that active record is defined in Martin Fowler's Patterns of Enterprise application architecture where like it says there's a one-to-one mapping between an action in a controller and a database table and the crud actions in the controller and the sql operations against the table. If your app is that simple then it doesn't really matter what you do. But for most places where I go they've long since grown up. They're really big applications and they've long since grown to the point where they have lots and lots of controllers that don't map exactly to specific database tables. And when that happens, like the user wants something because they invoke, you know, route woke up an action in a controller, and that action isn't about a specific table in the database. If you're, if you're really going to follow what I think of as the Rails pattern, you have to make up an object that does that thing. But the object that you make up stands in the, you can call it a service object, whatever you want. I don't really care about the naming of that layer. But But the object that you make up is not an active record object because there's no mapping. And it might be that 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 new object that you make, like let's say they're asking for a refund, like like once you start thinking this way, then there's a whole bunch of objects that embody the business operations, and they use those subclasses of active record to hold onto their bags of persistence and to traverse the database tables. But the business logic isn't really over there for applications this big.
0: Are you often fighting when you go into work with teams that, especially in the Rails world, where... They have these, you know, controller actions that are probably instantiating a number of different objects across, dif- you know, different classes and stuff, or, or trying to maybe move some of it down into some of the active records where maybe there's some callbacks, or they have a model when this gets saved, it's now going to go fire off and create a bunch of other things in, in, you know, behind the scenes or something, or sometimes that's all in the controller as well. Do you have some opinions on good strategies for that? Or are you think, or are you advocating for there in those scenarios, maybe there needs to be a class in front of that?
1: Yeah. I, I, for apps of a certain size, when the basically exceeded the active record pattern, I think that controllers ought to look just like what the generators create in Rails. They set one instance variable they know in constant. They check that thing for success or failure, and they render success or failure. They take the params hash in the session as input. and But that's all they're... Like, I don't test controllers because they don't know anything. And the same uh, back on the back end... With active record, I want those active record models to just manage. Per- they want I want them to be a kind of persistible and do all the sort of be the adapter, the relational to object uh, mapper. So in these cases, like I'm talking about very large shops with many, many, many like tens or hundreds of thousands of lines of code, it becomes really important for them to make use of the Rails framework to do all those things, which I consider commodities like unwrapping the HTTP packet persist in the stuff on the back end, but they need all their logic to be in the middle, unrelated to the framework. So in that case, it means that you don't you wouldn't use callbacks on the database side. You would instead put an object like the refund object or even maybe a ticket, like a, a poro that was ticket that used the Active Record ticket object. Um, and it controlled, like, like instead of letting active Record call your callbacks, you would just put an object in the front that said save to your active Record object and then invoke the callbacks. As simple as that, right? If you do that, you have to do your own, you have to begin and, and commit a transaction. But other than that, it's really simple. And, and what that does is it puts all those, all the code that's in callbacks comes in the, I think of it as going in the front and being in between the edges of the framework. And it means that all of your business logic can be tested without invoking Rails, it's straight up. There's no magic. There's no modules in the back. Those things would be in classes that get called. There's a file someplace that you can look at that contains all the collaboration for some operation. It's that thing where doing the easy thing over and over again leads to code that's not simple. Like one or two callbacks is probably fine. When you have a 100 Okay, we can see each other, so I just saw a bad look on Robbie's face, right? And so people don't know what order they run in. They don't know what data they need. And so there's a a scale at which that stuff is better off being explicit rather than being implicit and invoked by the framework.
0: Yeah, I'm often finding that when we work on existing projects and they have a lot of callbacks, those things are kind of in a way hidden behind the scenes almost a little, even though it's clearly documented or at least communicated in like the class file for you know, an active record object, it's still like there's like, what is that thing doing? I don't know. I'm not going to go look at that specific method right now to go figure out what that's all happening. But I think it gets really challenging when there's an application that's been around for a while and there's maybe a lack of thorough testing on those types of things. And so things get broken and you don't notice for a while because you didn't know that you chopped the finger off of something in the application, and then it's been bleeding this whole time, right, And I don't mean to get so graphic there, but I would imagine that this type of approach you're advocating for might be easier to write tests for.
1: Absolutely. The tests are fast. It's easy to write the tests, and they run quickly because you don't need the framework. Like Again, I, I want to be really clear. I'm not hating on Rails. I love Rails. Like Rails does a bunch of great things for us. There's a certain size of application where it's important that the devs on the application and the designers start taking back control of the invocation of the logic of their app. I mean, mean, here's another question I ask people when I teach. So 10 or 12 times a year I go in a shop. They're not all Ruby and Rails shops, but a significant proportion of them are. And so I'll ask the people who are using Rails, are you going to be using Rails five years from now? And they all look at me in alarm and say, well, yeah. And so then I say, are you going to be using Rails 10 years from now? And then they, they don't really know, but some of them think maybe yes. And then I say, are you going to be using Rails 15 years from now? And almost all of them think that, that their shops will not be using Rails in 15 years. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but what we do know, like I'm a woman of a certain age. So I've worked on projects in my life where, that went through successive generations of the latest framework, And what we know is for these very large applications, if they don't get a handle on what their app does by putting all their code in the middle and using the framework for the things that they shouldn't be writing, it's impossible to know what your app does. Like, How are you going to port that? How are you going to take advantage of a new language or a new technology? And so In in a situation where there's a business, like, usually I'm there because the business won, right? They drove all their competitors out of market, but they have this huge app that is sadly gradually becoming less and less wieldy. And what I tell them is, like, you won because you were super agile and adaptive and quick, and someone's going to come and take your lunch if you keep on doing what you're doing over a long period of time. And so I'm not saying we'll be off rails, but I think it's important to write applications where you're in charge of what you do, and you enjoy the the benefits of allowing the framework to do it it does, but I'm really terrified of letting the framework be in charge of invoking any of my own code
0: I think that's some really sage advice there and knowing that software companies you know that they have this you know, I think it's that's a good question like will we be doing this fifteen years from now you know I think back to rails has been around for or fifteen years or so now as well
1: fifteen I wrote a, I delivered a big app on o dot thirteen in two thousand five.
0: Nice. Yeah. And I think my first experience was like dot ten, yeah, okay, or something. And I didn't really build much, you know, so I think it was probably like that around the beginning of 2005 as well. I wouldn't have thought that, you know, it'd still be this thing 15 years later. And I always wonder, if, you know, just kind of like ruminating a little bit in the Rails community. Like there's always there's always like new shiny things. Right. Something that I've heard a couple of people and I've also said this a couple of times on the podcast with other guests is, you know, wondering when teams are advocating for, say, a rewrite which I think is kind of leading into, and that's always not really simple for the business to, to do because of I think a lot of things you're outlining there, but also there's this unknown of like, well, is this new framework or language providing us enough consistent opinions that we can kind of bake into our process? Or is this going to become another fad thing? Maybe labeling Rails as a fad. and I don't know if you can call it a fad if it's been
1: 15 years.
0: Yeah, so, and I think that used to be a thing, and, like, I remember when Rails started and how there was kind of a pushback against, say, some attitudes in the Java community at the time, and I'm like, are we becoming the same community, you know, having been around the community for a long time, have you seen, or does this seem like another cyclical thing where it's going to be the same sort of thing we're seeing 10, 15 years from now, but Rails will likely still be around?
1: Uh, my sense is that, in the la- like, at the 10-year mark or so for Rails, there was... At that point in time, lots of people, lots of early adopters, had moved on, and so there was this sort of growing up, becoming more enterprisey. This feeling of well, at that point, Rails wasn't the latest shiny thing, and there was a little like if you if you follow the programming indexes, adoption things, there was a little drop in Ruby and Rails over that time. But that has ticked back up, interestingly, and, and so it feels to me like it's matured to the point. It has proved to not be a fad, because there was that dip when all the early adopters left, and then it's been it's ticked back up. Because it is the, the Rails framework and the Ruby programming language are incredibly useful. They're super fast and super readable, and so people have found that there's value in it for certain kinds of apps. Not for every like I wouldn't do I wouldn't program robots that did surgery on babies in Ruby, <laughs> or send people to outer space. But there's lots of apps that, where we can tolerate a little a little less sort of help from the language in return for speed of development, and it's good enough. And so I, I think that's, I think Ruby is going to, like, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Ruby and Rails got to the 30 year mark. But what we don't want to do, like, this notion that the big rewrite or the shiny new thing. I see people take the mess they have and try to rewrite it and fail at that, like microservices, right? If you can't go in your app, if you don't have the skills to go in your app and make carefully delineated sections that communicate with APIs, like how are you going to do microservices? If you can't do refactoring to make your code be orderly and sensible, The shiny new thing doesn't help. It just gives you a smaller app at first that you can, where the cognitive load of understanding the whole thing is smaller, but eventually it will become the mess you have now. It's inevitable. You know, again, it's the adult thing about programming, right? It's the mending, getting better at mending. Like if you can mend it, then you can think about maybe parts of it belong in a different technology. That makes sense. But don't change technologies because you can't mend it. That won't help.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Sandy in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Sandy Metz. Now, I want to take a quick moment to also pivot a little bit so people can learn more about you because I don't want to assume that everybody listening knows who Sandy Metz is and, and a lot of people in the Ruby community probably do. So actually, first thing I want to talk about is could you talk a little bit more about your new gig at Code Devotional? What is it?
1: So, uh, okay, I'm terrible at blogging. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of a uh, missing presence on social media, but I do have a friend who's better and it's someone that I've been talking to every week for Probably fifteen years. We live moderately close to one another, but we don't see each other physically that much. And so, for many years, we would have we would get together and write code on Sunday mornings virtually somehow. And so we we began to refer to that as you might guess as the devotional. It's no longer a Sunday morning thing, but so we would have conversation after conversation. At the end of it, we'd say, "We should have taped that. That was super interesting. Other people might have been. They might care." And so we've decided to become a little more formal about that. So it's TJ Stankus and I. And so we have a website up. We got branding and a website and one blog post. But our intent is to do maybe tape some of our conversations, have a podcast, and also to get some other content up there. Again, I'm, I'm really bad. I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I'm a very slow writer. So even though I have two books out, there's, it takes forever And we're in the middle of the second edition of 99 Bottles of Oop right now. And it's all like, I am the complete and total bottleneck. And so hopefully this, you know, co-devotional is a way to provide more content and also to, like, I'm better talking to you right now than I am answering things on Twitter. I need that sort of human contact. And I'm hoping that the two of us will be able to do that such that we can do things that the public can see. So that's the plan. There's, if anybody here cares, if anybody listening cares, there's a subscribe page. So we'll have a very periodic, not very often mailing list. So go sign up and we'll tell you about things.
0: Excellent. I signed up myself last night. So I'm looking forward to my first email there. You know, you mentioned that the, you're working on the second edition of 99 bottles of object oriented programming. For those that might be familiar with the first edition, what can they expect coming in the new edition?
1: So the, f- the first edition was mostly, ref- it was like a long extended refactoring where every step was written down. So the second edition adds three more chapters where we expand into the notion of, so the first part is more of a recipe following, code smells and recipes. We're moving on into how to deal with uncertainty and how to make decisions at the boundary where maybe you don't get guidance from a code smell or a recipe. In addition, we're doing something that people have been asking and asking for. The book, the code examples in the book right now are in Ruby. When it comes out, we're tra- we've translated it to JavaScript and PHP. So there'll be a Ruby, JavaScript, PHP version with I hope Python to soon follow. So we're trying to do all it like it maps pretty well because it's a book about OO, it's not a book about Ruby. The everything we explain maps pretty well to all the dynamic OO languages. People keep asking for a stat, Swift, or, you know, it's not really clear how, to me, how to do that, but we're examining that for sort of deeper in the future. The book is for sale right now, the first edition. Anybody that buys it can, we'll get everything, all the languages, the whole new book when it comes out. It's really close, like chapter seven has gone to the editor, chapter eight, chapters eight and nine are written, but they're waiting on me to go through and do them, and then they'll get edited, and then real soon now. Real soon now is the answer to when it will be out.
0: That's great. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. But there was a couple of quick little kind of a hypothetical scenario that I actually don't think is that hypothetical. So let's, let's say that there's a team that has an existing software code base that's been around for over a decade, and maybe most of the original developers are no longer around. And they're hiring a new person, say, like Sandy Metz, to come in soon to come help them with hopefully helping them repair and improve and mend their software so that they can Increase their team's velocity or get more things working again because they feel like there's just too many bottlenecks and the product teams are like unhappy about the situation. What types of things would you encourage a team to start doing before someone like you were to show up?
1: Um, Like, like teams need to have a good grounding in OO. And you already mentioned Martin Fowler's Refactoring book. I feel like. The group needs to have looked at every page in that book and understand what's in there and be able to go find things in it if they think they need that help. That's one thing. I am a big fan of Michael Feathers dealing effectively with legacy code. And and if you have a big code base that you're having a hard time making changes in, often it's poorly tested. I would recommend people to try to get a handle on that knowledge. In terms of what to do with the code, It's really important to me to know that sort of churn versus complexity thing. And let me see if I can explain that. So so some files are complicated and change a lot, like user. Some things change a lot and are simple. Some things don't change much and are complicated. I don't care about that code. There's only a few classes in apps that are costing money. And what I would want people to do is make sure they had a clear idea of the parts of the code where they would get the most bang for the buck. I have done big rewrites, and they're really hard. Like, mostly they fail. So even though it's possible that somebody can make a superhuman effort and go away in a room and over a year or two years rewrite the app while it is being maintained by other people, I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think what, you know, what we're going to do is make some bargains about not making big things bigger. We're going to have some common understanding of what perfection would look like if we had it. And then every time we touch code, we're going to try to move a little bit more toward perfection. And I know you want to be mindful of time, but can I say, can I say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, go for it. It's about the things that we do as devs that cause this problem to happen. And I know we like to blame, we like to blame product. We like to say, well, product won't give us time to do refactoring. They won't let us do the right thing. But it is really common when I go into shops... This is a human nature thing again. In an agile shop, very often, you know, product says what, and we get to say how long. And the number that we give for how long is our estimate of how long it would take us to write the worst possible code and throw it over the wall. And if we were to give, if at every point where you gave an estimate, you told your customers, either I'm going to give you an estimate that that is so short that it will force me to write really terrible code such that over a long period of time, the code will become unmaintainable. Do you want that? Or I'm going to give you an estimate that, I'll give you another estimate that allows me to improve the code a little. And if we pick these often enough, eventually the code will get better instead of worse. Like product always chooses thing too. Like every now and then they have an emergency, but mostly they're lamps to the slaughter and they need us to use our judgment about how to write code. and, And we should give them the choice. And very often we don't give them the choice. And so I would tell devs like they want you to do the right thing. They want you to do your best work. And every now and then there's an emergency and you should just do make whatever mess you need. But mostly your estimates should include things that make the code base better. And you shouldn't, and I don't ask to do that. Just do it. They want you to do it.
0: Maybe a suggestion there to not need to feel like you need to ask for permission to do a good job.
1: They want you to do it. They want you to do a good job. They don't want your worst work at every turn. And so that pressure that we put on ourselves, we have to be a little careful about that. I mean, maybe there is somebody out there that wants your worst work at every turn. You know, lots of people want your best work. You could just go somewhere else, right? Yes. Just be careful about giving estimates that force you to do your worst work at every turn.
0: So I think there's a lot of really good advice there for folks listening where, you know, if you're in an environment and you're feeling a lot of pressure is to maybe recalibrate how you're approaching, like, say, even providing estimates on how long things are going to take. That is something that I see on a regular basis because we work with clients in a more of a retainer format where we have some narrow budgets at time and the clients are trying to say, well, how much can we squeeze out of this budget effectively? And and so sometimes that turns into a scenario where our developers might feel pressure to be like, to be an advocate for their budget. But they're, sometimes they're making decisions on behalf of their client, thinking budget is the most concerning thing because that's the thing we talk about the most often with clients, not things like maybe necessarily velocity or things like that, or even just like long term maintainability because there's not necessarily a good way to sometimes calculate the long term costs of every little decision we're making. We just know it when we feel it later on when we're like, oh shit, we, we screwed up somewhere along the way. I think this is good for people to reflect on there. So a couple of last quick questions for you. What non-software development book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry?
1: Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Pro- you know, I live in the world where I'm desperately trying to write things all the time. <laughs> so I'm like, here it is. I'll show you. This Elements of Style. Yes. <laughs> Shrunk in white.
0: It's a good one. I'm, when I was working on a, a book once upon a time, because I was an early Rails adopter, and I learned that it was really difficult to write was, a book about software that was so early in its infancy of growing and changing that chapters were becoming irrelevant like six months later. So
1: I recommend against that.
0: <laughs> so where can listeners best follow your thoughts? You know, you mentioned code devotional Where can people learn more about you and your books? And are you speaking at any upcoming conferences in the next few months?
1: You know what? I don't have a single conference scheduled right now. Yay. I'm, my website, cnmets.com, has a blog that I sometimes post to I'm on Twitter at Sandy Metz, S-A-N-D-I-M-E-T-Z. And really, Code Devotional is the best place because my intent, uh, my intent is to make content there.
0: That's great. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Sandy. Thanks so much for talking shop with us.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Rob. It was a pleasure to be here.